0: Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for everything that you do. And it's not just because of the things that you do, because when we tend to think about the things that you do, we naturally think the things you do for us. And So there is this tendency for us to selfishly love you because of how you benefit us. And the beauty of the gospel is that's exactly what we're supposed to feel, that you do so much for us. And it all stems from your love and your grace. It stems from your election, that you chose us before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 says. And in love, you predestined us for adoption, to be your sons and your daughters, to be heirs with Christ. You do that for us. And in being for us, it's for your glory and for the exaltation of Jesus. And so we cherish the things you do for us. And from that, you continue to do things for us. As Jesus said, which of you fathers, if your son asked for for bread, would give him a stone? How much more is our Father in heaven, Lord, are you going to provide for us? And so, if evil men can give their sons good gifts, how much more can the perfect, loving God, our Father, give us good gifts? And so, we we ask a lot of you, God, and you are willing to deliver on all of it. And this morning, we ask that you would deliver your word to our heart, that you would make a pathway for us to understand and believe and not just not just receive knowledge that makes us smarter, but that we would receive transformation that makes us more like Christ. Because we want to be like Jesus, Father. Not just because we want to be something that we want to be, but because the more like Jesus we are, the more we'll understand you, the more we'll know you, the more we'll love you, the more we'll engage with you, the more... You, we will delight in, and there is nothing better than you. And we, we see that in a foggy manner now, and this side of life, and this side of death, and this side of eternity, we just don't see you clearly. But you've given us clarity in your word to see what you want us to see. And we look forward to the day when it's no longer a dim light, but we see Jesus face to face. And the reality of who you are will overwhelm us. And we'll throw our crowns at your feet and we will worship you and magnify your sacrifice and worship you forever and enjoy your presence, walking with you, talking with you, spending time with you, knowing you, worshiping you, serving you, serving each other, loving each other, recognizing the, the perfect righteousness in the brother or sister of Christ standing next to us that was achieved by your blood. We want that now, Father. So we pray that you would do that now. This, that today in your word, as we dig into 1 Timothy 5, that you would show us that today. So we could stand next to the one that we worship next to as we worship you and look at them and say, I see Christ in you and to treat them accordingly. We can't do this on our own. We depend on you fully. So we ask your spirit to work in ways we can never even ask of or think of or imagine. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So we reach the end of chapter 5 today in 1 Timothy. And so also, we finish Paul's instructions to Timothy for how to evaluate an elder or a potential elder for their fitness for the office of shepherd and church leader. So in this final section, Paul essentially gives Timothy some general knowledge that he is to consider as he examines certain men for the office of elder. And there are a couple things here to consider. One, Timothy is responsible for evaluating these men for the office of elder. Okay, so church leadership, current church leadership has a responsibility to evaluate incoming men for eldership. That, I I don't think anyone here is going to argue with that. That makes perfect sense. Two, that means that Timothy will have to invite some men into the office of eldership. And three, some men will tell Timothy that they believe God is calling them into the office of elder. So in all of these possible situations for how an elder might, how a man might become an elder, Timothy's role, along with the rest of the current standing elders, is to examine and evaluate whether this particular man is biblically equipped for eldership and whether or not he fulfills the requirements and the qualifications for eldership And if he is genuinely called by God to serve the church as a shepherd of Jesus's sheep. So all those things are taken into consideration. I don't think any of that is news to you. That makes sense. Man wants to be an elder, whether he thinks he is or the elders think he should be or whatever. The leadership has a responsibility to evaluate this man um, because we would all agree that if someone is going to step into eldership, that they should be a godly man. So the, really the question is, how do you define a godly man? Because we throw that term around kind of casually. Maybe some people throw it around casually. What is a godly man? Well, technically, anybody who's a believer is a godly man if they're genuinely a believer because they have Christ, therefore they're godly. And re- regardless of their measure of maturity, they have Christ and they are gods, so they are godly. But we tend to use the phrase or the words godly man or or godly woman or godly person, whatever. Um, We tend to use that to signify someone who is exceptionally righteous. You know, their life is noticeably Christ-like. And that's fine that we use that phrase that way. That's okay. But we can't just say a godly man because technically any any believer would qualify then. So so that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7, Paul establishes some clarification for eldership and says, now this is the kind of godly man that can become an elder. And he he creates those those, uh, stipulations or those requirements. And then in chapter 5 now, he's kind of walking Timothy through this process of how to manage eldership, how to bring men into eldership, how to evaluate elders. So there's some real practical um, tools that Paul is giving Timothy at the end of chapter five here. And so today we kind of finish up this idea of eldership. And next week we'll dive into some other things, uh, particularly slavery. Uh, But what Paul gives Timothy in today's text is this general perspective on what to be aware of when he's doing his evaluation for a man becoming an elder. And ultimately, the evaluation is a measure of the man's holiness versus the measure of his sin to see if his life conforms to the requirements of church elder. Now, that is a touchy reality because when you start looking at Christians with an evaluating eye, And you start going, hey, I'm going to take your life, I'm going to pick it apart, and I'm going to stack up all the holiness, and then I'm going to stack up all the sin, and I'm going to measure it. We are playing with fire. We're playing with condemnation. We're playing with guilt and shame. And we are playing with legalism. Because now we're starting to look at Christians according to their behavior instead of recognizing them for who they are in Christ. Because regardless of behavior, if you're a genuine believer, you are perfected in Christ, perfect in Christ. And it's this theological phrase that we use often called already, but not yet. You are already perfect in Christ and your eternal life is secured in Christ. The perfection of who you are in Jesus is secured eternally for you. It cannot be taken away. It is already there. And because it's already there, it is already here, but also not yet, because while I am already perfected in Christ, I am still existing in my human nature, which is a fallen and sinful nature. And so, according to Galatians chapter five, there is a war within me between my flesh and the spirit of God who lives in me. And dwells in me. And so there is a, a fight. And Paul says, don't gratify the desires of the flesh and you'll satisfy the desires of the spirit. And there's this war that goes on in, in, inside of us between the flesh and the spirit of Christ that's in us. And so there's this not yet aspect to our perfection. And we all admit and we all know that we're not perfect. Okay, we know that part. The not yet, that's easy to identify. None of us are perfect. It's the already that we seem to forget. And because we forget about the already, it makes the not yet much more difficult to manage. And so it's, it's very challenging to, to enter a role of like elder and to have a requirement placed on you as an elder of the church, a leader of the church, a shepherd to God's people, which is essentially an under-shepherd of Christ. Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. His elders are under shepherds to him. They are acting in the stead of Christ. We're acting in his place to lead his church. Okay, and that role is very challenging in a lot of ways. But one way in particular that it's very difficult to be a church elder is that you have this responsibility to look at people's lives and go, here's your sin and here's your righteousness and to weigh those things. And the reason you have one of the reasons it's required that the elder is mature and theologically and doctrinally sound and holy himself is because he needs to be able to manage as he evaluates your life. He needs to be able to take those sins that he sees in your life and the righteousness he sees in your life and to manage them in a way where he isn't throwing them in your face with condemnation. And on the flip side, that he isn't taking your righteousness and ignoring your sin like it doesn't matter because Jesus paid for it. So let's not even address sin or talk about sin or care about sin. It doesn't matter. Sin all you want. It's been paid for because of the gospel, which is not what the gospel teaches. Yes, it's paid for, but it doesn't teach that you're free to just go sin. So that's really a difficult balance to manage. And that that responsibility is on men that God has called into the service of eldership. That's, and, and, and again, the service of the church, because that's what an elder does. They serve. It's a servant leadership. It's not, we are the leaders, do as we say with the condemning and dictator hand, but our job is to serve you. One of the ways in which we serve the church is by knowing the Bible, enforcing the truth, Digging into your life, examining your life, building relationships with you, loving you, seeing where you're righteous, seeing where you're sin, addressing your sin, magnifying your righteousness, and helping you crush sin and live in the glory and holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ that he purchased for you. So applying the gospel in all those ways is very tricky. Because not only do we have to get people to understand that theological reality, which in and of itself is a difficult task to get you mentally, knowledgeably on board with that reality, but then to enforce it in your life in a loving, gentle, patient, gracious, understanding way that actually moves you and motivates you into righteousness and away from sin. That takes a lot of tact. And I can tell you from my personal experience, it's impossible to be perfect at. It's impossible for an elder to be perfect at that. So even the elders who try to do that well for you need back from you the same grace as we try to do that and fail. So what this means and essentially what we're going to get at today is I'm about to read the text for you. But what we're going to see today is this balance between how we uh, navigate each other and our relationships in a way where we are understanding our righteousness and understanding our sin and addressing both of those things in a way that leads us all to be more like Christ. And I think there's more to be said about that than I will even touch on today. But my hope is that what we see today is The magnificent power of the gospel to do all of that work. It's not the elders doing that work. It's not you doing that work. It's the gospel doing that work. And that's what I hope we see today. Because I think that's what Paul is getting at with Timothy in these final instructions. And he says to Timothy. Now for Tim, just hold on a second. For Timothy... This is an application of how he deals with the evaluation of elders. But do not forget that this is applicable to all relationships in the church. What Paul is addressing is this general concept of, hu- of the human condition. So it's applicable to all people. It's not just how elders evaluate people who are going to become elders, men who are going to become elders. But it's how we as brothers and sisters in Christ evaluate ourselves and evaluate our friends who we sit next to in church, who we golf with in the afternoons, who we watch football games with, who we have dinner with, the people we live life with, how we navigate these relationships is is revealed here by Paul. And what he says in verses 24 and 25 is this. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So back in verse 22 Paul warned Timothy not to be partial or prejudiced, right? So Back in 22, Paul's talking about, you know, if someone's got an accusation against an elder, careful how you manage that accusation, evaluate the information, gather some, you know, make sure that there's two or three witnesses bringing it, and then make a a, a wise decision on the situation based on a plethora of information that you have investigated. Don't just prejudge. Don't assume the elder's right. Don't assume the people are right and vice versa. And so... In order to prevent such prejudice, Paul gives Timothy this final insight into the human nature. And the wisdom, this wisdom for insight that Paul offers will help Timothy determine if a man is fit for eldership through proper evaluation instead of like this pre-judgment. And as, as much as Timothy is to use this wisdom to navigate eldership, Paul is offering knowledge about the general human condition which means this is not only true of elders, it's true of all of us. This is applicable to all of us. And so the application here for Timothy is, is, is not just for how he deals with incoming church, possible church elders, but it extends beyond just the requirement to examine elders, but the elders' requirement to examine everybody in the congregation. I mean, just let's think about this logically. Do you want me to pray for you? Yes. Who would say no to that? Of course, you want me to pray for you. Okay, so how do you want me to pray for you? Um, Lord, please help Bob live his life in a way that honors you. You want me to pray that way for you? Of course you do. But how much better would it be if you told me what's going on in your life and then I went and prayed about that thing and I was like, Lord, help Bob manage his marriage because him and his wife are having a difficult time and I really, and then you'd get specific So, obviously, there needs to be an investment in each other. And not just from your pastor or your elders, but with each other. Do you want your friend who's sitting next to you or your wife, your spouse, your husband sitting next to you or your your children or praying for your children? Do you want those prayers to be happening for each other? Yes. Are they happening in the church? I hope so. And it, before you think, yeah, are they happening in this church? Are you guys praying? You, we should be looking inwardly and going, am I? Am I praying for my friends? Am I praying for my spouse? Am I praying for my children? Am I praying for my parents? Am I praying for my friends? Am I praying for the people in the church that I'm not necessarily friends with? People that I just know who go to church with me? Am I praying for them? In order for those kinds of prayers to be meaningful and more effective, we need to know what's going on in each other's life, which means we need to invest in each other's lives. This is why we do Life Group. I said this, I think it was was last week or the week before. This is why I think Life Group is the most essential ministry. Actually, I think I said it during Life Group, so probably didn't say it here at the pulpit. But I think Life Group is the most essential ministry of this church. Because it's where we sit down together in someone's home and we connect with each other. We eat together. We chat. And then we study the Bible for a little bit. Maybe not a little bit. Maybe a long bit. But either way, we study the Bible together. And beforehand, we're chatting. We get to know each other. We're talking about life. And then we have prayer together. And we share our struggles and the things we're going through and the things we pray about. We learn about each other. Now we know how to pray for each other. And then afterwards, we just kind of linger and talk for a little bit. We're building life together. It's such an important ministry that we are doing that together. That's why Bible studies are very similar. Those Bible studies are a little more focused on studying the word more than the, you know, the fulfillment of the relationship side of things. But that's why Sunday mornings are important, too, that we're here together, learning together and learning the same things at the same time. So we grow at a similar rate and then we have a point of reference that we can use to, to invest ourselves in another person. You can talk about life and, and after today's sermon you can say... Go to your friend and say, hey, because we were both sitting in the same sermon, listening to the same guy preach the same text and we heard the same words, now I know and we both know that we need to be holding each other accountable. And now you know that you're held accountable to holding me accountable. And now I know that I'm held accountable to holding you accountable. Now we both know. So if we don't hold each other accountable, then we both know that we're not doing each other any good. And because you do it together, now you get to grow together. And when people tell me, I mean, you know, particularly back in like when COVID hit, the, when people would tell me, like, I understand maybe at first people were a little leery to get back into the church. I, I understand that. But for, you know, a year later, and there are people saying, well, I don't go to church. I just do church at home. And I just said, no, you don't. You don't do church at all. Cause that's not church. Church is together. So This is not just about elders. This is about the life of this church. So let's break these verses down into two categories to better understand, to help us understand what Paul is saying. We'll get to the category breakdown in in a minute here. But the first and most obvious truth that Paul is stating is something that all of us already know which is that as Christians, we are doing one of two things. We're either doing good works or we are doing sin, right? We're doing good or we're doing sin. If we're not doing good, we are doing sin. But what we may not often consider is that there's no in-between. There's no gray area. There's no... You know, to to us, there might be a gray area. There might be something we do that we would say, I don't know if this is righteousness or sin. And those things tend to be, in and of themselves, not an inherently sinful activity. Right? So if you said adultery, well, we know that's sin. Okay. Uh, But drinking a soda, is that sin? Well, we would say, no, it's not sin to drink a soda. Well, it might be. Or it might not be. It's a gray area. Scripture doesn't say it is. So it's not inherently sinful to drink a soda. It's inherently sinful to commit adultery. It's not inherently sinful to eat a sandwich. But can we do those things in a sinful way? And that gray area, Scripture is clear on, even though we ourselves might be unclear about it. And so there is this biblical reality that is much harder to practically engage with is this reality that we are doing one of two things. We're either doing good or we are doing sin. We're either acting in holiness or we're acting in sinfulness at all times. There is no other state in which we can operate. And we get this partially. This is one of the reasons why we get this from Romans fourteen twenty three, which is a text I quote often. But today what I'm going to show you is the fullness of that text later. But right now, I'm just going to read the the part of Romans 14, 23 that I often reference to you. And he says, Paul says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Meaning, if you go to your kitchen and you make a sandwich and you eat that sandwich without, uh, now hold on. There's a variety of ways to sin here. Okay, so I'm just going to kind of be vague in general. You go, make, go to the kitchen, make that sandwich, and you eat that sandwich without any recognition of God or any thankfulness to God or any hint of, of recognition of God's provision or just anything or, or something or in some way. You're not relating this to God or your faith in him in some manner. Then you are eating that sandwich in sin. If it doesn't proceed from faith, it's sin. Now, the act of eating a sandwich is not inherently sin. we can make anything that is not inherently sinful into sin simply by our attitude or thoughts or the way we do it. You ate that sandwich, not out of faith, but out of hunger, and you didn't recognize God and that natural need of yours as he provided for that need. Now, we're sinning because of it. So, I think if there's any rebuttal to that idea in your mind right now, it's probably I'm going to guess it's something a little bit like that is a little nitpicky to get so into the grooves of every detail of life and well, eat the sandwich and, and sin because I didn't honor God with it. And it's like, exactly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one, whether you what? Jetty, what is it? whether you eat or drink or whatever you because Jetty was on my basketball team and that was our team verse. So whether you eat or drink, eat a sandwich or drink orange juice or a soda, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Meaning there's a way to eat and there's a way to drink not to the glory of God. And that would be sin. So somehow, some way, in some shape, some manner, some form, we need to eat that sandwich and make that sandwich to the glory of God. <laughs> Amen. So if you're thinking at all, like that, that's a little nitpicky, you know, that's, that's a really stressful way to live. Always having to recognize God in every little thing we do, in every detail, or else it's sin, not only is that nitpicky, but you know what that feels like? Condemnation. Because, and the reason it feels like condemnation is because the honest truth is that if we really think about all the details of our life, do we do those things in a way where we are recognizing, I'm doing this for God's glory? And what we will recognize as we examine our lives is the answer to that is no, we don't. There's a lot of things we do just absent-mindedly or in habit that does not really honor God in our heart and our mind, our attitude, and the action itself is not sinful. When you brush your teeth this morning, what was going through your mind? Now, you could be brushing your teeth and just be like, oh, thank you, Lord. In your head, because you can't talk, because you got a toothbrush in your mouth, but you're thinking in your head, you know. Praise, thank you, God, that like I have toothpaste. Like some people don't even get to brush their teeth, and I woke up this morning, and my mouth tasted disgusting, and I could feel my teeth, and now I get to brush it off and have a fresh mouth, and I got a toothbrush, I got running water, I got running water, God, not the whole world does not have running water. We're so blessed, thank you. Now that's pretty, that's pretty elevated version of that, right? Now, and I'm not going to tell you that you shouldn't do that because that's too much. I would say, that's not enough. However, the reason that sounds overwhelming and exhausting and almost like too much is because we're so not used to that kind of mentality in every detail of life. So it sounds extreme because we're not used to it. And I think if we've made a practice and a habit of a more detailed kind of living, where we were paying attention to every little thing we do as a way to honor God, we would start embellishing, not embellishing, but um, uh, emphasizing God's glory more profoundly in, other, in, in all the details of our life. So, if, if it sounds condemning, that like, if you don't honor God, so just, if you don't honor God, And all the details, like when you brush your teeth, you better honor God. When you make that sandwich, you eat that sandwich, you better honor God. That feels and sounds condemning, right? Oh, so you're telling me that everything I do is sin if I don't just like bow down and worship God every time. It's like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Now, you don't have to physically bow down, but in your heart or in your mind, some way, shape, or form, giving God glory. So you could brush your teeth and just go, thank you, Lord. And you know what you mean. You know what you're thinking about. Is it better if you think through that in your honor to God? Yes. But is it, you know, just taking the moment to recognize that everything I do must proceed from my faith in Christ. That's not condemning. That's freeing. It sounds condemning. And the reason it sounds condemning is because once I say these words to you, your brain goes, oops, I didn't do that today oops, I didn't do that yesterday. In fact, if I think about my past, I don't do that very often at all unless I'm specifically doing a God-like activity. I do it when I'm at church. I do it in my prayer time. I do it in my Bible devotion time, and I do it when I pray at meal time, but I don't do it when I'm driving in the car, and I don't do it when I brush my teeth, and I don't do it when I'm making a sandwich, and I don't do it when I'm Talking to my friends and I don't do it when I go to the movies and I don't do it when I'm at the store shopping and you think about all the details of your life and going, I don't do what scripture is telling me to do, which is to give God glory in every detail of life. And then because you haven't done that, you think to yourself, I don't like this message. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Now I feel like you're condemning me and judging me. And I'm here to say that that is not what is happening because that's not the gospel. It's not condemning to pay attention to every detail of your life, that it be sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the word of God and prayer for the glory of God. That's not condemning. It's freeing. Because the fact that it is sin is not meant to condemn or even to be, or, and, and the, sin is not the focus. It's not meant to make you focus on sin. It is to reveal the continually powerful working of the gospel in your life. That's what it's meant to do. It's not condemning, it is literally what Scripture calls freedom. Freedom is not just freedom from sin, freedom is not just Christ paid for all your sins. And so now you can just live your life the way you were living it before and just know that all your sins are covered. Paul says in Romans 6, uh-uh, not allowed. So freedom is not just freedom from sin. Freedom is freedom to do righteousness in faith at all times. Paul says in Romans 6, after he says, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. And then in verse 18, Romans six eighteen 18, it's the first sermon I ever preached in my life. It was Romans 6, 18. He says, we are as slaves, we are slaves to righteousness. Your freedom is slavery. There's a distinction there. Because if you're thinking, well, I I, I, I thought I was free now in the gospel. So aren't I free? So why would I now be a slave again if I'm told I'm free? Because what scripture calls freedom, it also calls slavery to Christ. Because Christ is our master. Our Lord, and we submit to our master and our Lord. And so we are slaves to him. And if that sounds like, a, like shackling to you, and therefore condemning and restrictive instead of free, you have to recognize before you were a slave to righteousness, what were you a slave to? Sin. And he says that specifically in Romans 6. He says, do you not, this is Romans 6, 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You have two choices. You can be a slave to sin, or you can be a slave to righteousness. And before you knew Christ, you didn't have a choice. You were a slave to sin, And that slavery led to death. And what you have been freed from, so this is your freedom. Your freedom is you've been freed from the slavery to sin and are now reshackled to something better. Righteousness, which is satisfying and good and great and glorious. And now you are free from the shackles of sin and free to live in the righteousness of Christ. And if that sounds condemning or suppressive in any way, just consider the gospel and you will see it is not suppressive or condemning. It is freeing. The gospel says that in any and all of your sin, it is paid for, covered, forgiven, washed away, thrown away as far as the east is from the west. If you think about that, just take a moment to think about how far is the east from the west? At what point is east now west? Right? The point of that meaning, when Scripture tells us that, is that it goes as far as it can possibly go away, meaning it disappears. And God no longer deals with you according to your sin, but instead deals with us according to his Son. Therefore, as a believer, if you eat that sandwich in sin... Without recognizing God in any way at all. And then afterwards, so this is where the condemnation comes in. Then afterwards, you remember that you didn't give God any glory for that sandwich. Before you start condemning yourself and feeling shame and guilt and thinking, I don't like this message because it's condemning and shaming and it makes me feel guilty. But all the sins I did in the past, I didn't recognize God. And what, what, I'm a sinner now and I'm going to hell. No, no. That's why the gospel is so important. Because if you could take just for a moment, if you, if you just think, I didn't eat that sandwich or I didn't brush my teeth this morning to the glory of God, don't look back on that in a condemning manner. Because if we're going to remember that we sinned by not doing something that proceeded from faith, then we also have to accompany that thought with something else the gospel. And in recognizing that gospel, there are two things we need to recognize when we think back on all the ways in which we did not honor God in all those minor details of life. Two things we need to recognize. That sin has been paid for. You are not condemned for that sin. And you are also not condemned for any former sins that you might not even remember or recognize. They also are Paid for. As Romans 8 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm not motivating you to think back on all the ways in which you didn't honor God the way you should have in the past, and then to feel condemned and guilty and shame about it. I want you to look back on those things and go, paid for, paid for, covered, forgiven. Those sins have been crushed and killed and nailed to a cross and buried in a grave. And Jesus rose from the grave and left those sins buried and left those sins dead and then laughs in sins and death's face and says, You cannot hold me down. And that freedom that Christ expresses as he rises from the grave, he puts into you and goes, You get that same freedom. Sin and death, they don't hold you down. They can't condemn you. They can't shame you. So don't look back on your former sins and get all shamed, ridden, and anxious, and worried, and and confused, and frustrated. and, 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 you know, I want you to be repentant, and I want you to be contrite and broken over sin, but that has to be accompanied with the freedom that you've been given in Christ to recognize the power of the gospel that has overcome that sin. We cannot stay. In the death and the sin that we think about in our past. Because we are not there. We have risen, Romans 6, again, we have risen with Christ. We are freed from that condemnation. And the second thing we need to recognize. Because God's grace... Because of God's grace to cover your sin, he has also installed his righteousness into you. And it is his righteousness that has now made you aware of those former sins. And aware of current sins and aware of the propensity for those same sins to return in the future. You only know that because of his grace, which he delivered to you through his gospel. And because of that, same grace that covers your sin reminds you that your sin is covered and it reminds you to give God the glory for the sandwich that you just ate and to give God the glory for covering your sin and to give God the glory for not condemning you to hell for that sin and to give God the glory for using that sin to remind you to magnify his glory the next time you eat a sandwich or brush your teeth. Or kiss your spouse, or shake someone's hand, or read a book, or watch a movie, or whatever you do. That that ability you have to recognize those possibilities is because of the grace given to you through the gospel. And your recognition of those things is what we call growth, or sanctification which is also a gift from God that is bestowed on you by his grace to not only cover your sin, but to promote future righteousness in you. And if you're thinking, again, it's too picky. That's so much micromanagement about every detail of my life. And that, that this perspective is overthinking. And we do not need to care about every detail of life in every way. Then, then that means that we, ha- we are basically admitting then that God doesn't care about every detail of our lives. Being sanctified and holy. And we would all agree, of course he cares. I mean, isn't life just a series of decisions? You make 50,000 decisions a day. That's not a joke. Not, I didn't make that number up. That's a reality. It's an approximation because obviously that varies. But you make approximately 50,000 decisions a day. Thousands. I almost said millions. Thousands of micro decisions every day. That you, you, are, do, that you are acting out through habit. That you are not even consciously aware you're making decisions. You ever drive home from work and you get home and you pull into the driveway and you're like, how did I get here? (laughs) You're just like, I don't remember driving home at all. Like my brain must have been somewhere. How did you make it home? You weren't consciously deciding to turn right. You just knew to turn right. It was a habit and you made that decision. You could have not turned right and you would have not gone home. But you did because it's a habit and it was a decision. It's a micro-decision. And most of our micro-decisions are decisions made in a rut that we've created because of the habits that we practice. And the only way to break out of those ruts is to start practicing new decision-making, new new decisions. Start practicing new decisions. Decide to make new decisions. And our sin comes from those habits. And so the only way to break out of those habits is to to pay attention to the micro-decisions, the small things, the details, the little stuff. I'm not going to go that way because when I go that way, I see this thing. And when I see this thing, I know it makes me think about this thing. And that leads my mind to sin. So I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to create a new habit. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to do this thing instead. And I'm going to start developing a new habit. that I'm going to start paying attention to the things that go through my eyes because it's starting to affect the way my brain works and the way I think and the way I relate to people. You don't just decide, hey, I'm not thinking right. I need to change the way I think. Well, they ch- wait. Changing the way you think means changing the way you do everything, the way you live. All those micro decisions matter. That's all your life is, is a series of decisions you make over and over again. And as you make those decisions, they become habits. And those habits become who you are because who you are is what you do. And what you do is a product of the habits you've created, which is a product of the micro decisions you make every day. Who you are is 50,000 decisions a day. You can't tell me every one of those decisions doesn't matter, that God doesn't care about all of them, that he's not interested in sanctifying each decision so that you will be more like Christ. You can't tell me that he doesn't want that. So you can't tell me that paying attention to every detail in life doesn't matter. You are either sinning or you are doing righteousness. There is no in-between. And so we need to pay attention to every detail of life. Now, will you pay attention to every detail of life today? No. You won't. And when you don't, you're going to go, Duh! I'm such a piece of garbage. And then we condemn ourselves and we feel guilty and we judge ourselves and we feel shame. And I'm here to say, don't think that way. That's not the gospel. We want to sanctify those decisions. But we have to sanctify them with the gospel. Which reminds us that while we're working on that decision, while we're working on... Decision number 22 of 50,000, that that means there are 49,000 other decisions that we still haven't perfected yet. And that's okay, because I'm covered by the gospel of grace. And God will get me there. But it's my responsibility to do the work today. That's not condemning. That's freedom. Because if you don't have freedom in the gospel of Christ, you are Restricted and bound to every one of those decisions you make every day being sin. So, what this means is that we are always acting in one of two ways, either in sin or righteousness. And that is true. And think about all the times you act without any thoughts of God at all. I don't want you to think about it too much because I don't want you to condemn yourself. But I want you to look back on those things and go... Just recognize him and go, that was sin. I brushed my teeth this morning and think about God for a second. I give him no glory. But you know what? I'm redeemed by his grace. And my brushing my teeth or eating that sandwich without recognizing God's glory may have been sin. But that sin has been crushed, conquered, and redeemed. So that when I did brush my teeth without giving God any glory... It may have been an act of sin, but it was also done in the righteousness of Christ because that's who I am. So the point isn't you're a bad person for brushing your teeth without thinking about Jesus. The point is I didn't brush my teeth without and I didn't. when I brushed my teeth, I didn't think about Jesus. But it doesn't matter because I have Christ in me and I am free from the condemnation that that sin would produce. So I'm not going to sit here and focus on the sin that I did or how it didn't glorify God well enough. I'm going to focus on the reality that I am paid for. That that brushing my teeth this morning was done to the glory of God because I did it and I have Christ. And Christ in me does only righteousness and he was brushing my teeth this morning. And on the that's the already side of things. But on the not yet side of things, we have to look at that and go, but... I want to think about Christ when I do that. I want to, not in a condemning way, but I want to think about Jesus. I want to honor God when I brush my teeth. And because I have Christ in me, because it's done in righteousness no matter what, I want to turn it into a righteous thing. I want to take, I want to take conscious effort to brush my teeth and make the sandwich and watch that movie and go to this place and do these things for the glory of God in every detail. if you're still thinking that God doesn't care about such little things, like how we eat a sandwich, let me read the entirety of Romans 14, 23 for you. Because as I've been quoting it for a long time, I usually only quote the end of the verse, and I haven't quoted the whole verse. So I'm going to read the whole verse to you. If you're thinking God doesn't care about, say, what you eat, like I expressed in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, listen to Romans fourteen twenty three. Paul says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, there's a larger context for that verse that I don't have time to explain, which would help us kind of understand what he's really saying here, but we know that even eating matters. Every detail of life matters. Every detail of life requires faith in Christ or else it is sin, as well as recognizing that even when we do sin, we must proclaim and declare and remember the gospel that covers our sin or else we will live in the condemning shadow of unnecessary judgment that we place over ourselves unnecessarily and sinfully, even though Jesus' death and resurrection has removed that cloud of judgment. That's John 3. So we can sin without faith as believers. But as believers, we must also recognize that even in sin, God's gift of faith that he has given us by his grace is a gift that ensures that we are not condemned, but rather That even in our sin, we are still secured in our faith in Christ. Thus, we are free from the condemnation and the guilt that is produced when we sin. And therefore, free in the righteousness of Christ to pursue sanctifying that thing that is sin in our life. So with that truth established, that we are always doing one of two things, either sinning or acting in righteousness, we can categorize now Paul's wisdom for Timothy's endeavor in evaluating elders. And there are two categories that Paul states which I just gave to you, sin and good works. Those are the categories. And each of these two categories has its own two categories. And Paul says that sin is one of two things. It is either conspicuous or inconspicuous, meaning it is either seen or not seen. And if it is seen, then Timothy has obvious and recognizable reason to prevent a man from entering the office of elder, right? And then Timothy must also be wise enough to know that some sin is not seen, that it is hidden. And this is why Paul is this is what Paul's really addressing. The obvious sins are obvious, so they don't require much examination to recognize them, and thus, you know, seeing that this man's got obvious sin, he doesn't qualify for eldership, that's that's easy to do. But for some men and for some sins, they are hidden and they aren't revealed until a proper evaluation is done by other elders, or a proper evaluation is done by each other in our in each other's relationships, not just elders. And that is ultimately why Paul is warning Timothy, because human nature hides sin. The sinful human nature hides sin. And Timothy must do a deep evaluation of men who are considering eldership. And the only way to do such an evaluation is through having time to do that evaluation with that man. And Timothy must have a real relationship with the people he is evaluating. Meaning Timothy has to be a genuine shepherd to this man. As he becomes his friend so he can peer into his life. That isn't a manipulative tactic that Timothy's supposed to say, Hey, make sure you be his friend so you can, you know, find a way into his life and discover all his sin and expose him. That's not it's not manipulation, it's shepherding. Becoming his friend. Why? So I can sanctify him. Which requires recognizing his sin and declaring the gospel to him in that sin. We all must have this mind in our friendships to keep an eye on each other in love, to help promote Christ's likeness in each other. And I'll get to that in the application in a second. Now, all of that will help Timothy examine men for eldership and help him recognize sin. And that's a big part of relationships as Christians is seeing our own sin and seeing each other's sin. But there's a flip side to that coin that has to be wielded just as much. Just as much as Paul recognizes the human condition to sin outwardly and the human condition to sin in hidden ways, he also recognizes that in Christ, believers will do good works and not sin. And so Paul adds two categories to the category of good works. And the categories for good works are good works are either conspicuous and seen or good works are hidden and not seen. But if you have a meaningful relationship with these men, if you have meaningful relationships with each other, then their hidden good works, as Paul says at the end of verse 25, cannot remain hidden. So just as much as Timothy is to be wise to the sinful condition of humans he is also supposed to be wise to the righteous condition of those who are in christ provided for them in the gospel meaning you don't just look at christians and go i see your sin you look at christians and you say i see your sin i know you're in christ that sin doesn't match who you are in christ let me tell you who you are in christ As a motivation to crush that sin. Not as condemnation. Not as judgment. Not to make you feel bad. But for you to feel broken and contrite. And to hate that sin. And to decide to to, to make war with that sin. And as your brother in Christ. I will make war on that sin with you. I will join you in arms. I will stand beside you. I will fight that battle with you. I will play whatever role you want me to play. As you decide that you are going to crush that sin. That I now recognize you and I'm now calling you out on in love and in faithfulness to you and out of the pursuit of your righteousness, done with the gospel of grace and forgiveness and righteousness of Christ, let's kill this sin because I want to see you, brother, and you, sister, be like Christ. That's what I want for you. And if I can't tell you that you're sinning, then I can't help you. But the problem is so many Christians, that idea of telling each other about our sin is so scary because it's typically done in a condemning and judgmental way. It's it's often motivated by self-righteousness. Like, oh, I see that you're deciding to do this thing. Like, meaning, I wouldn't do that. Like, that kind of attitude is garbage. That's sin. Instead, it's like, I love you so much And I love Jesus so much and I recognize the hardship of growth and God is wrecking my heart too and changing my mind and sanctifying me and growing me and I know how hard it is and I see you struggling with sin and I know it's hard there too and I'm not going to let you go through that alone because I don't want to go through mine alone so I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to say hey brother. Listen to me, I see that you are making these kinds of decisions. I see these subtle little ways in your life that I see sin peeking through. I don't want you to start making those habits a part of your life because those little decisions you're making that may seem meaning, meaningless to you, I think are meaningful. And I think they're gonna create a series of habits that produce a new you that is not a good you. It's not a Christ-like you. So I wanna nip those in the bud now. I wanna address those habits today and I wanna love you and great and help you conquer those sins and sanctify you. And when I do that, it's going to hurt. But I love you. So we're going to do it together. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. It's not love to not tell your friend that they need your help. Or that you see their sin. Love is rebuke. And the reason we don't like it often is because the way we do it tends to be harsh. Not loving, not gentle, not patient, not kind, not understanding, not lowly. And not gospel driven, but condemning. Or done with arrogance and done in self-righteousness. Oh, I see, you've got sin to deal with. Well, I'm a Christian and I'm your friend, so I'm going to help you deal with your sin. I have a better idea. What if instead of that, we obey Jesus and follow Matthew 7, 5, where he says, first, take the log out of your own eye. So recognize there's an order that Jesus commands to addressing your brother and sister's sin. An order that he commands. I don't think I can say that phrase enough. There is an order that he doesn't suggest, but commands. First, take the eye out of your own log. Take the log out of your own eye. Or just rip your eye out. Whatever it takes. Jesus said, cut your arm off. I'm sure he's okay with ripping your eye out. Take the log out of your own eye. Then... To quote Jesus, you will see clearly, meaning you will not be fogged by your own sin as you address the sins of your brothers. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know what else will happen? You know what the clarity you will get when you take the log out of your own eye? Humility. Because I don't know about you, have you ever gotten a splinter? it's insane how much a splinter can hurt you're like it's in your thumb and you're like looking at it and you're like i can't even see it why does it hurt so much every time i move my thumb it hurts i can feel it in there and i can barely see it how can such a tiny tiny little unseen thing be so painful well i'm gonna guess that if a sliver that size hurts a log would really hurt and so When you take that sliver out, there's a sense of relief, right? But as you're taking the sliver out, it hurts. I just saw a video the other day. I watched these videos. I don't know why these are so intriguing to me, but these guys who put like horses or cows feet up in holsters and then they shave off their their, uh, their hooves. I'm like, it is so satisfying to watch these videos. And yesterday I saw one. Where this guy is, uh, uh, one of his animals had stepped on a nail. The nail was like an inch long and it was deep in its hoof. And he was yanking. He's trying to pull the nail out. And as he's pulling, you can just hear the cow just moaning like, like it is in pain. And the moment that thing is released, it just stops. So the process of pulling it out hurts, but it's needed. The process of pulling the log out of your eye hurts. And what it does is it shows you, oh, my goodness, I have this massive sin in my life, and it hurt really bad when I took it out. And that process of, of recognizing that is humiliating and humbling, and it hurts, and it puts you in the right mental, emotional, physical, psychological, and spiritual place of humility to then go to your brother and sister and say, I see you got a sliver. I'm not going to make a mountain out of a molehill because I just took a log out of my eye and it hurt. So I'm not going to condemn you over that sliver when I've got a log to deal with. And it changes your entire perspective on how we address the sins of others. Proverbs 27.5, I just read that. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. But listen to this, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It is better to have a friend telling you what you need to hear than an enemy telling you how good you are. Because a friend will look at you and say, but you're not good. Christ is. And right now, you're operating without him. And I see it in these ways in your life. I recognize all those subtle decisions in your life where you are not giving glory to God. In every detail of life, it matters. And I want to encourage you, brother. I just took a log out of my own eye. And I don't want your splinter to become that log because that hurt. And I love you too much to see you go through that pain. How many of you parents would never discipline your kids and let them do whatever they want? You want to run in the street? Run in the street. I don't care. You want to go play football on the highway in the middle of rush hour? You just go do whatever you want. You want to jump out of the top of that willow tree? I don't care. You want to go play with snakes? Have fun. I don't care. Do whatever you want. You would look at that parent and say, you deserve to go to jail. And this Wisconsin state law literally calls that neglect and and says you deserve to go to jail. So even a secular organization of law recognizes that that is wicked. None of us would treat our children that way. So why do we treat each other that way? I don't want to neglect you. I don't want to pretend like you're doing fine. You're not. You're not doing fine, and you won't ever be doing fine until you reach glory. But in the same breath, I have to say, You are doing great! Because you have Christ in you. You don't have to feel condemned and judged and overwhelmed with your sin. I want you to be broken by your sin, but that brokenness is only possible by the power of the gospel that reminds you that you are a new creation in Christ. You are something different. That sin is not your identity. You don't have to live in it anymore. And as your brother in Christ, I want to come alongside you and say that sin, that splinter that's in your hand, it doesn't belong there. It is part of the cross. It died. It's gone. Get rid of it. Why are you carrying it? It's not even yours. You don't possess that sin. It's not your property. It belongs to death. You belong to Christ. That's why I don't want you to sin. Not because I want to make you feel bad or I want to show you how righteous I am by identifying how unrighteous you are. I love you too much. That's what love is. That's what church relationships are. Now, a little clarity, obviously, that doesn't mean we go running around just being like, ha, sin, sin, sin. Man, this is fun. I love just pointing out everybody's sin. Who, who's next? And you start slapping people in the face with your judgment. This is done in relationship. This is done in patience and in kindness and in gentleness and with the lowliness of Christ. This is done for the gospel, through the gospel, by the gospel, which is a gospel of love, and forgiveness and grace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And we start treating each other this way and start engaging with our, in our relationships this way. We will become more united and we will become more satisfied in Christ by being more satisfied in each other. And that is the beginning of a healthy church. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need you, we need you, we need you. Help us to sanctify each other in the best possible manner we can. Always holding intention, tension this balance of, I have sin, but that's not who I am. And in any little detail in my life where there's sin, expose it, God, so I can crush it with the righteousness of Christ and the gospel that I live in. So that my identity of who I am in Christ will expose and destroy that sin that is trying to take over my identity. But we won't let it because you won't let it because that's your gospel. So let us, God, not live in a constant state of fear of, am I going to sin? But let us live in a constant state of, I know who I am in Christ. And this sin in my life doesn't belong to me. And we need to know your gospel and love your gospel and think about your gospel and know your grace and your forgiveness and think about it constantly to live that way. So do not let us forget. Let us always be conscious and remembering the power of your gospel that not only freed us from sin eternally, but works to continue to free us today. We want that and we need it. And we need it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to grow into unity. We want to grow into Christ-likeness. We want to grow into joy. We want to be a healthy church that serves you faithfully. And it begins with our heart. It begins with my heart. So do that work, God, even if it hurts. Knowing that you'll never leave us or forsake us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.